Hey everyone, I'm Allison Lee, your host here at CraftCast.com, and today I'll be talking with Ms. Rachel Karen, an artist and art historian. You're going to love what she has to say, plus some other news to share with you and some ideas and things, so let's get started. Show number 184. Starting the day again, oh yeah, letting the sun shine in, uh oh. I'm gonna dig within myself Uh Uh-oh Life may be never what you think But I think I'll just go with it And create something new Just get yourself right into your chair Come on, listen, you can learn to create Something new It starts inside you Well, hello, 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 everyone. How's everyone doing? Enjoying the fall weather, I hope. It is gorgeous here. Gorgeous, beautiful sunny days. Love the colors. As much as I don't want to give up summer and garden, I'm just saying. Fall is pretty spectacular, pretty beautiful. So that sure helps. The visuals love that, right? Uh, and what else has been going on? Well, I'm still, we're so excited with all the new live classes happening over at craftcast.com and hearing from all of you. And, um, it's just a blast. And if you haven't come over to check that out, please do, because the whole new website is so fun and make sure if you haven't signed up, uh, there's a free ebook. You'll see it on the front page there. It's my favorite tools. Oh yes. It's been a big hit. Really fun. So check that out. Uh, it's just um, uh, so much fun to hear from everyone and uh, get their feedback. So thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you, everyone who's enjoying the new site. Uh, and so what else is going on? I um, wanted to share a book, another book that I love, and it's called Fashion Jewelry, the collection of Barbara Berger. Over the summer, um, I went into the city, NYC. And there was a great exhibit at the Museum of Art and Design right there in Columbus Circle. I highly recommend just to go to that museum just for the experience. It's just lovely. And the restaurant on the top floor, uh, just fabulous. Just all lovely. Anyway, it was a great exhibit. And it's interesting. It's a, uh, I guess you use the term um, costume jewelry, even that's sort of an old-fashioned term. Uh, that's put together that is so inspiring visually materials uh, and covering that time period of artists from mm, I guess it goes from 30s to current 1930s to current and it is well for me it's just enough too because I don't know about you but I go into a museum different from our next guest our guest coming up today but when I'm in a museum I can only take so much I can't stay there forever Uh, And this is, to me, was the perfect amount, except that after I went through the collection, I went over to the permanent collection, and all of a sudden I realized under the cases of the permanent collection on display, you could pull out drawers. And when you pulled it out, it was under glass, but you could pull out all these drawers and look at more permanent collection. (gasps) Uh, That was a little overwhelming. There's a lot to look at. Anyway, highly recommend it. And if you didn't see that exhibit or you haven't gone to that uh, museum, check out this book, Fashion Jewelry, the Collection of Barbara Berger. It's a huge coffee table book that you can get through Amazon.com. I have the link over at the site. And it's very inspiring. I'm just going to say that. I can only take so much, many pages at a time, but totally fun. Uh, And then I want to share with you a tool. I know many of you already know this tool, but if you don't, I'm going to talk about it a little bit. It's in my favorite tools book too, you'll see. It's the Silhouette Cameo Cutter. It's also, there's a Silhouette Portrait uh, Cutter, I think is the other one. Uh, Again, there's a link on the site if you just want to check it out. So there's a class on the craftcast.com site from Winery Tanner using the cutter to cut metal clay, which I love metal clay, but I'm not that good. So (laughs) I'm not up. I'm not good enough to tempt that, but I realized I was missing out not having a silhouette cameo cutter. So 
uh, a deal came up with all the pieces plus the $10 card in there to get files that you can buy online. Actually, that's the link on the Craftcast uh, site that I put in there. So check it out. It's a good package deal. And anyway, I got one. And then Miss Sue McNinley helped me set it up because frankly, I didn't want to read one more instruction book, which prompted Sue, we will be having a class on the craftcast.com site about how to set the machine up so you don't have to go through reading the instruction manual. Anyway, these cutters were originated for um, paper cutting for the scrapbooking world. Oh, but oh, there's so much more you can do with it. It is very addicting, is all I'm going to say. No, I'm going to say a little more. Never mind. <laughs> you can use it to cut out cards, to cut out um, what I saw this yesterday around cupcakes. Someone had cut out these beautiful little sort of paper, thick paper, uh, to put the cupcakes in, sort of lace work. I mean, it was so cute for party kind of stuff. I mean, if you want to do party things or cards, this cutter makes you look like a genius is all I can say. <laughs> I did a birthday card for my guy and said, I cut this all out. And he looked at me like, you did? And I just sort of mumbled on my breath with a cutter, not by hand. Uh, but anyway, it is fun and lots of creative ideas that you can play with. So I'm putting it out there, um, the Silhouette Cameo Cutter. Get the links from the Craftcast site because it's a great deal, that link. So check that out. <laughs> so there we go. Two fun things I wanted to share with you. Uh, now, today's guest is Ms. Rachel Karen, uh, and Rachel's not only an artist, she's an art historian, which I find fascinating, and yes, I do get intimidated, but now I'm not intimidated anymore, and you won't be either hearing her speak. It's so much fun to hear her passion about this and understand a little bit more about what that means, so you're going to enjoy that. Uh, but before I talk with uh, Rachel, and there's a plane going by, I bet you could hear that, hmm. Uh I have a piece of music from Amanda Duncan. The song is Bed of Clouds. Love Amanda. Get her link over at the site as well. So enjoy that and then come on back and I'll be talking to Ms. Rachel Karen.
Well, I'm excited today. You know I love my guests. And I've talked to my guests today before, and I love having a real intelligent, thought-out type of conversation. So I know you're going to enjoy this as well. My next guest is not only an artist, but also an art historian. I'm very excited to welcome Ms. Rachel Karen here today, talking with me. Thank you for coming on. Hi, Allison. So explain to everyone first off, because, you know, I hear the word art historian. I just go, oh, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, art history. But really explain to us what that responsibility is or the job that that entails for you. Well, and for me, since I'm not a museum curator, which would have been my dream job, hmm. for me what being an art historian um, means is being able to look at art in the context of where it was made and use it as a window into studying the maker and the culture that it uh, exists in. And so it's a way of studying history. Mm-hmm. Many, many art historians are not in any way makers themselves. They truly are academics. It's very much a library, museum, paper, writing uh, discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does give you a perspective on the world coming through the the venue or through the objects themselves. It's in many ways like being a historian. It's just that historians are only dealing or they deal with many, many cultural artifacts or many, many cultural events or historic events such as wars and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. earthquakes and things of that nature. Art historians tend to look at things through the medium of, of some kind of an artistic creation and use that as the window and the entree point into looking at a culture and a history. And of course, nothing, and this is certainly not unique to anything I've, I thought up, but nothing ever is created or exists in a vacuum. And so everything that everybody makes as mundane or as, as magnificent as it might be is coming out of the world of the artist and the experience of the artist and the by extension, not only the artist, but the environment that the artists exist in. So mm-hmm. someone like Joseph Cornell, who was famously a recluse, who was the uh, late night, I think he's, oh, I'm in a bog here. I'm pretty sure he's early 20th century. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. Um, collage box creator, mm-hmm. extraordinary mm-hmm. man, extraordinary uh, artist, was calling and picking up bits and pieces of his culture and his world and putting them together to make these boxes, which ultimately sometimes were quite direct and sometimes mostly were very enigmatic. But they're part of his world and they're an extension of his world, even though he didn't travel a whole lot himself. Mm -hmm. Or if you think about it in terms of literature, someone like Emily Dickinson, who existed most of her adult life in the confines of her own community and her own garden and her own home, or Jane Austen, who traveled a little bit but didn't travel extensively. All of what they created is an, is an example of, of incorporating and embracing their totality of culture. It, none of that could happen without their larger environment. So an art historian looks at the art object, and my pers- this is my attitude about art history, and then uses it as a window and an entree, a door to go in to explore the artist, what the artist might have been thinking or where the artist might have been coming from and by a bigger, a, making a bigger window or a bigger door or a bigger room where that artist is existing and the kinds of um, experiences and culture that that artist is coming out of. So there are lots of different disciplines in art history as there are specialties in art history. So art historians tend to be divided by period, by periods of time. So you have people who specialize in ancient and Egyptian and people Mm -hmm. who specialize in modern. My particular field was 19th century, um, Western, American, and European. And who were some of your um, people, your your gurus, your idols that you looked up to in that time period? As an art historian? Yes. Or as painters and Mm -hmm. artists? Art historian, I'm thinking. As an art historian, my my advisor was um, really somebody who was phenomenal. It was a woman named, uh, she's still alive and she's still working, a woman named Beth Johns, Elizabeth Johns, who was just an extraordinary researcher and had a, a philosophy about art history and about looking at art that I really related to, which was 
again, this concept of the art is telling you a story about mm. the culture or the maker. But there are other ways. I had a professor who was a curator at the Na- at the National Gallery of Art who was a we have majors and minors, so my minor field was 17th century Dutch, and Arthur Wheelock, who was at the National Gallery of Art and still is there, was somebody who was interested in the content of the painting, which is a lot of what I was interested in, but also very, very interested in the chemistry of the painting. And so one of the big controversies when I was in graduate school was the cleaning of Rembrandt's famous painting, The Mill. Mm-hmm. And everybody had thought about it as being this dark, gloomy, moody painting with right. these clouds. And then they cleaned it, and they found that it was a beautiful blue day, <laughs> like, you know, blue sky day. And so Arthur had been part of that whole conservation issue, and he taught me a lot about looking at paintings and looking at art and what the what we see now versus what the artist might have done, and but he was really interested in the chemistry and the the um, the physical properties of the paint and the way things put together, and so there were and then there are other people who specialize in whole other attitudes and approaches. There are lots of methodologies in art history in it that you can take within individual time frames. So it's a very specialized, and it can be an extremely esoteric mm-hmm. field. And um, but fascinating. I find it. I find it fascinating. Yeah. You know, always, always interesting. I do think, as um, a maker, as an artist myself, it has um, really enhanced my understanding. Um, it's given me a, an eye that I, I really, I trust quite quite implicitly my eye um it's very well trained i i am able to and it's something i talk about a lot when i talk about critique but it's i'm able to separate what i like personally as taste from what my eye can see and 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 evaluate and analyze just strictly in in terms of design or composition or what i'm looking at and so that gives you a a sense of being able to be a bit dispassionate about looking at work, looking at your own work and evaluating what you're doing. Sometimes I think it makes me too hard on my work. I was going to say that's a lot. <laughs> it, it's a lot. It's a very high standard to try and, and think about all of the really phenomenal artists that have been over the course of um, human history and to, to keep up with that standard. Um, but it, it, it informs you. Um, it informs you as a maker about what else is out there and what people have done. And I think as an art historian, having been a maker, it also informs you about the creative process. And so I, I, when I talk about this, I often will knit my fingers together or mesh my fingers together uh, or intertwine them, whatever the right, right. phrase would be. Right. And, and they, they, it's, to me, it's very much they're connected. They're very symbiotic. And I think each side helps the other side. Now, you mentioned before that curating was your dream job. What does that mean exactly and why? Oh, well, when I got out of graduate school, which I, I, um, I was probably the longest enrolled graduate student ever. <laughs> the university was very kind, Congratulations. As, was Beth, as was Beth Johns, about following me. I thought I was going to be finished and be all done in record time, and then it turned out that it didn't, didn't work out quite that way. Mm-hmm. But um, when I finished after 14 years, I think it was 14 years of graduate school and two children and um, various other life events, I was pretty burned out. It was just pretty exhausted, and mm-hmm. I really would have loved to have had a curatorial job. That would have been um, my preference rather than teaching in an academic institution, which was fine, but it wouldn't have been. I really loved the research. I love being in a museum. Being in any kind of a museum context is so comfortable for me. It oh, just really? Huh. Feels, it just it's it's like coming home, even if I've never been there before. I just love that sensation of being amongst all those those things and the the objects really speak to me in a way that that I love and so that would have been a fabulous job to be able to research and and be amongst those kinds of things and create exhibitions and um have that kind of situation and it just didn't it wasn't there it just didn't exist 
So a part of it was um, some inherent sexism that did exist and probably still does exist. Um, men in art history are far rarer than women in art history. Oh, okay. And so uh, they frequently uh, leapfrogged over people. That's a tiny little bit of feminism coming out there. Um, and and I, had, I had commitments and obligations here so that I really didn't feel that I could take a job anywhere. Right, right. Um, I had two little kids, and I was I was here, so uh, it didn't happen. And um, I, in a lot of ways, it turned out for the best because I am using it, and I have used it for the last eight to ten years uh, in a, in a very active way. Um, but now you mentioned something just then about which I love hearing, the way you described being in a museum setting and what that does for you. So many artists, I, they will describe that setting, wherever it is. And so you've now described it in a museum. Did you, how early on in your life did you have that sensation, that passion, that whatever that came up in that museum setting? Oh, really young. Yeah. Do you remember the first <laughs> like time? Because usually... Five or, five or six. Really? My mother is a, is, um, a devotee of the arts. Uh -huh. she, I, live in, I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area and, and still end up living there, much to my surprise. Um, but she would take us to the museum, and I remember being a little girl and having prints, the National Gallery, for 25 cents. You could get a, uh, I think they were 11 by 14, maybe, I think they were 11 by 14 or 12, yeah, I think probably 11 by 14. You could get a 12, an 11 by 14 reproduction that, as a little girl, I had a whole bunch of those in my room. Mm -hmm. That was something that I, I truly cared about and wanted. I didn't want Disney and I didn't want any of the other stuff that the little girls that I knew or the kids that I knew had in their rooms if they had anything. I wanted these art reproductions. Um, it really to mattered you. to me. Yeah, I'd love And that. I had a beloved, beloved grandmother who was an artist and um, I don't know, Allison, it just sang for me from a very, very early age. Oh, the grandmothers do. Grandmothers whole, do that in the us. The whole art experience. The, right. My grandmother would, was lived in Chicago, and she would come and we would paint together. She Aww. was a quite. She was an amateur painter, but she was a quite accomplished amateur artist. And uh, so she would come and we would paint, and we would paint my teddy bear, or we would paint it, you know, the the stuffed bunny or whatever was around, or a something, you know, the the pencil cup or whatever it was. It wasn't anything important, and she would send me art supplies. And in fact, some of this new work that I'm doing right now, she sent me uh, a loom when I was 12, a, a weaving loom, and I actually am using that now. I held on to it all these years, and I am What kind of it. loom is it? It's a table loom. A little table loom. Do you remember, I've just seen recently that you said looms. They seem to be popping back up. Remember making potholders off of those looms? Oh, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Love those. Yeah. And I don't know if you've seen now, but it's worth going to a toy store to take a look at. They now have a loom called a rainbow loom, and it's taken the place of those, and it's done with colored rubber bands with intricacies that are just fascinating. I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that. It's worth looking at. We so. love that looms. Well, now how, now talk to us about how you got into your choice of, I'm, I, I'm guessing that you started first in painting before you went into polymer clay. I, which, was, I was, in high school, I was really, um, I survived high school because of the art room. I, sure. I'm, I am um, not the most gregarious person out there. I, 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 social skills are not always my strength. And I had, an, uh, beside from this beloved grandmother who was a huge influence on me, I had a wonderful art teacher in high school who did not look like somebody who was a revolutionary, but in fact was a revolutionary. She was had uh, blonde, you know, probably bleached blonde hair from, from what I remember, mm -hmm. probably artificial, and she would wear, I'm dating myself, but Ladybug and Papagallo-type mm -hmm, clothes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, um, and she looked like this, she was tiny. She looked like this, you know, demure thing, and yet... I took life drawing with a nude model in high school. We couldn't do it on campus, but she arranged to do it off campus. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I did a serious course of printmaking in high school, and we had a serious ceramics program mm -hmm. in high school. So most of what my art experience was in high school was 
was printmaking and some painting, some, some basic painting like you would get in a, in a high school curriculum, and then quite a bit of ceramics, a wheel thrown and raku kilns out in the quad, and then this life drawing class off campus. That was great. So, and had I had more faith in my innate talent, I probably would have seriously thought about going to art school, but I didn't. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get a lot of encouragement at home for that route Despite my grandmother, I didn't get any encouragement. So I ended up going to a very traditional academic program and then discovered art history and fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. Because I, even though I had been in the museums and I had known all about these paintings and my grandmother, the same beloved grandmother, sent me all of these books about reading about painting, many of which I read over and over and over and over. And I still have mm-hmm. uh, now in my library. I didn't understand and I didn't know that there was a discipline of art history. And so I was a freshman in, in college um, in an honors program and uh, got into a, like the art the basic survey class about ancient to you know renaissance art history mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. just flipped right <laughs> it was like i love that just flipped that out it. i mean this you is found fabulous home. i love this yeah. and i had gone to college thinking i was going to be a pre-med and that just like went out the window right because i love science and i did love science well that's one of the great things about college that that happens and you all yeah, of a sudden absolutely. something goes off that you yeah. just never knew i mean it's one of the special yeah. things but now how did you discover i know we we're going to talk about whether we call it polymer or polymer clay how did you find that medium i found polymer because my daughter who is now grown up and actually a school teacher herself um, was in fifth grade, and the state of Maryland, which is where we live, requires the students to study the state of Maryland for social studies for the whole of the fifth grade year. And there isn't enough about Maryland to fill a whole year's curriculum. Mm-hmm. So they ended up doing a whole set, uh, section, or however it is, a, a unit, I guess they called it, on colonial America and apprenticeships. And so she was required to do some kind of an apprenticeship, and it was very, very loosely structured. And my sister, who was a great dabbler and uh, has all in, in, in the arts and has, is in the arts herself uh, now in different, very different ways than I am, but involved, um, had discovered this stuff polymer, and she said, oh, I'll bring it over, and we'll just play with it for a couple of days, and that'll, and I'll teach Emily what I know, and that my daughter's name is Emily, and that will, um, that'll be her apprenticeship, and it mm-hmm. suited her. And so I sort of followed along, and this stuff was pretty cool. And so this was in probably 91 or 92, and we played with it, and it lived in a shoebox on my, cl- on my shelf for a while, and then... Um, I had just graduated. I got my degree in 19, my doctorate in 1990. So it was, I was still kind of feeling my way, figuring out what did I want to do with these now fifth grader and second, third grader, second grader, second grader. And um, I just sort of sat there for a while and I'd take it out and I'd mess with it and I'd put it away and I knew that I knew, I think I was a pretty early member of the Potomac, of the National Polymer Clay Guild or whatever it was called, Mm -hmm. the Potomac Polymer Clay Guild that became the National Guild. Never went to a meeting, never did anything. Ended up taking a class from Nan Roche at some point Mm -hmm. at G Street Fabrics, which was a major center at that point for doing things. Kind of thought, oh, this is, you know, this is interesting. But she was talking about caning and that didn't do it for me. And took a class from Lindley in sort of the same way and didn't really, you know, it was cool, but, you know, okay. And then somewhere, for some reason, I decided I was going to do something, and I saw that the Art League, which is in Alexandria, Virginia, which is a um, continuing education for adults and a serious art program and also does children's programming uh, that runs out of the Torpedo Factory, which is an art center in Alexandria, was teaching a class, and Elise Winters happened to be teaching it, and it was about paint on polymer. Mm-hmm. And I went, and the light bulb went off. Mm-hmm. And not only did Elise and I make an instant bond and an instant connection, I mean, it really was like, you know, zing. Right. Um, but the paint on polymer opened up all sorts of new possibilities because I had had this printmaking background, and it was the caning was not something that spoke to me particularly. It was fun, it was interesting, but it wasn't something I was I was passionate about. Right, right. 
And somewhere subsequent and around, maybe not, I don't know if it was after or before, but somewhere right in that same time frame of taking this class with Elise and, and she was teaching crazing and um, having people set little bits of polymer into brass frames and making brooches. I mean, it was probably 98. I think it was 98 when we met. Uh, Nan brought, and I, I went to a, I went to like one of my first and uh meetings, guild meetings, and uh, Nan showed up with silk screens and how do you silk screen on polymer. And so it was mm -hmm. this lucky convergence mm -hmm. of silk screening and paint and polymer and surface, which to me was, was so exciting and so wonderful because that was, a, that was what clicked. Um, clicked. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm looking at that your work as you're clicked. talking, um, going through your website. It's beautiful and when you're as you're talking, I'm seeing that showing up in your work. It is really gorgeous. Everyone needs to take a look so. at that. Well, now tell everyone so people understand more about the um, polymer versus polymer clay usage of the name of the material. Well, then we're going to put my art historian hat back on. Okay. Um, so a lot of us, and particularly uh, in extended conversations with Bruce Pepich at the Racine Art Museum and yes. Lena Vigna, who's the curator, we spent a lot of time discussing the nomenclature of polymer versus polymer clay. And it turns out that polymer clay was a very artificial name to begin with. It was something that Nan and I believe his name is Seymour, who was the publisher from Flower Valley Press. I think that's the name of the press. I'm not good at these details without checking. But when Nan published The New Clay in 1990, mm -hmm. uh, 1991, um, they needed a title. And up until then, nobody had called it clay. It was called a modeling compound. If you still look at the packages for FEMA or the packages of Sculpey or the old whatever, it, none of them say clay. Okay. They still to this day don't say clay. They say modeling compound, something else. Um, and so they needed to come up with the term, and they sort of just decided that clay was a way to sort of shorthand describe it. Okay. The only thing it really has in common with clay is it's malleable, and it gets and heat. It uses heat to create the transition from a malleable form to a permanent form. But after that, Bruce and Lena and a lot of uh, those of us who were involved in this conversation, Elise, myself, and some others, we all felt that clay was really a confusing term. If you take a, a ceramic object and you pick it up, it first of all weighs a lot more than anything in polymer will weigh. It's breakable. The polymer is almost indestructible. Mm. It's conf it's It's heavy. <laughs> Polymer has very little weight. It has masses, vast amounts of shrinkage. Polymer doesn't have very much shrinkage. And it ended up being a real difficulty for museums to categorize something. If they were absorbing, when, when Racine was absorbing this large polymer art collection, uh, a, a body of work for, the, polym, for their, the polymer collection project that became the foundation of their, of their uh, polymer collection, as they said, what are they, if everything is called polymer clay, are they supposed to put it in ceramics? Are they supposed to put it in jewelry? Right, I mean, right. it, it ended up being that it became a, a difficulty more than a help. And so it was much better to just drop it. At some point, it may be that it will evolve and there will be a whole new category of alternative art materials right. called plastic. Right, right, But we're right. not there yet. Right. And so there's been some pushback. And I don't think that anybody will drop clay anymore at this point because people use it. And um, I occasionally use the term. There's no polymer you don't. It's an awkward term where you think, you know, I need to go buy four pounds of polymer. I need to go buy an ounce of red or something. You know, you know, people tend to say, oh, I need to go buy, you know, clay. Right, or have right, you right. got some clay on your table or whatever, however people reference it. But ultimately, it's, it's, to me, it's not, a, it's not a satisfactory description. No, as I'm um, looking even at your website and I see things listed as polymer, acrylic, no, I, 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 it I, makes I, sense that it's just I called polymer. I hardly ever use the word clay. Yeah. Every once in a blue moon it'll come out of my mouth. Uh, I never will write, I never use it if it's on the archive. It doesn't exist, I don't believe, on the archive site other than a description. And there is a post on the archive site about the evolution of the term and how things got from A to B to C. C. I, I guess I see it as, a, as an evolution, which is it didn't have the word clay to start with. 
the word clay was artificially attached to it right, and stuck. Right. And now maybe we're moving out of that. Now, I know that, that uh, Maureen Carlson and some other people have argued against it because they feel that there are so many polymer materials now. There are resins and all sorts of things, which technically are kinds of polymer, that it's confusing because mm-hmm, you don't know mm-hmm, which one mm-hmm, you're talking mm-hmm, about. Mm-hmm. But, but they still are all plastics of a kind, and they're not ceramic. To me, polymer is synthetic and uh, ceramics clay is mud yeah and so that's a huge differential yeah and that's why I, that's part of I, I guess I feel very strongly about it but I it's part of why I, I've made the distinction or I try to make the distinction it makes sense especially the way you're explaining it and plus it's a relatively new material so it's still finding its oh name it's very new yeah. I mean if you think about the history of jewelry making or textiles or exactly. paint or clay or basketry any of those things, they've been around for thousands and right. thousands and thousands of years. Polymers basically started getting used in the 1980s. I mean, we're talking very little time. A, a exactly. speck of dust in the, in, the, you know, in, the, in the continuum of art making and humans and art making. And I think that, yes, people are just still understanding what polymer is. I was at an art fair this weekend and looking at someone's work. It was beautiful. And my girlfriend said to me, oh, is this polymer? I've never seen polymer before. And it's a funny thing because it's how that person used polymer. It's not, right. you know, it could have been when, something else. It's a when unique I do material. A show and, when I do a show and people look at my work, they have no idea what it is. Exactly. People because it doesn't look like anything they've ever seen right. that fits that concept of polymer. They look at they think it's fabric, they think it's right. leather, they think it's wood, they think it's paper. It never, ever occurs to them that it, it's not. Which is sort of, uh, which is a fabulous thing about that medium. It is. It's one of the amazing things. The medium is. is only limited by what you can imagine to do. Exactly. Well, let's just take a quick jump here, because I really would love to hear your opinion on the question that comes up all the time about... I can barely say the sentence anymore. I'm so tired of hearing it. But how people find their voice, the search for people's voice in their oh, in their artwork. That's a, <laughs> yeah, that's a hard topic. I think. How would you um, sum it up? You know, because it's well. I think it's 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 study, 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 or practice, 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 exactly. and then put it all away and find your own, do your own thing. So when you and I were discussing on online on email about doing this conversation, I remember writing something to you that I, I really don't follow very much of the, uh, it's not fair to call it noise, but of the general noise that's about polymer on a day-to-day basis. I don't social look at the media. website, mm-hmm. the social media. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not on Facebook. Mm-hmm. I don't follow any of that. I look at Cynthia's uh, Polymer Clay Daily every day for maybe 10 seconds. And that's it. And I find ultimately that all of that, as wonderful as what people are doing is, and there are many, many wonderful things being done, mm-hmm. that for me it becomes a huge distraction. Yes. Um, I don't want to know. I don't want to see. I want to do my work. I want to have my vision. And the new work that I'm doing right now, which I'm really excited about, and you have to be totally crazy to be doing it because it's so labor intensive and it's so it's been much much slower than i anticipated um there isn't anybody doing anything like that so looking at anybody else's work doesn't help me and all i can do is try and take what's in my head and what i want to do and where i'm trying to go and keep plodding along yes and that's scary for a lot of people it's very scary because i still don't know if this is going to work and yeah. i've invested a year and a half in it yeah oh it's yeah oh yeah that's how it goes well where do you find your inspiration then uh, when the well's dry you know when you've had it in your head and you, textiles textiles okay so you textiles and other art you do go am, out to a museum do you pick up a book where do you go to as your everything okay. everything i'm a major bookaholic i have we have uh, I don't know how many thousands of books in right. the house. We have right. lots of books. I'm still buying. I always buy books. I go to a museum. I find that, you know, you look at a catalog, you see sheet patterns or textile patterns. Right. Um, the security linings of envelopes. I mean, graphics, anything. So you just go off on a on a visual hunt of textiles yeah, and I some just, of your just, favorite stuff. Yeah, yeah. And you hunt around until all of a sudden you go, oh, I feel good. I can go back. Um. Not really. I, I don't. Um, 
I'm probably a little bit more academic about it than, okay. than a lot of people would be. Um, you know, that I'll go makes to a sense. museum, I'll read a catalog. Um, I saw this fantastic show last spring that I went to see twice in one weekend that was in New York that was about uh, the intersection of clothing and culture and painting. It was Impressionism and Modernity mm. at the Met that was just knocked my socks mm-hmm, off. It was mm-hmm. so exciting. Um, so that becomes enormously um, important. I spend a lot of time thinking about that. I may be one of a handful of people in the country that actually read the catalog cover to cover. Um, and I love it. It is very inspiring to do that. I love when I come out of a museum exhibit and I'm so filled up I can barely take it. Yeah, um, it's, I'm, I'm supposed to um, meet a friend who's also an artist in New York in two weeks, and, and I'm really excited because the Met has another textile show up, which is this um, World Textiles. And it's, uh, I can't remember the name exactly because it just opened, but it's like 1500 to 1800, and it's historic textiles. And I, I just I love textiles. Now, can you spend hours looking at all of them, or do you have a time limit? I know for me. I have a time limit in a museum, and then I'm so filled up, I need to get the visual palette um, cleared I off. Can, I, 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 I can spend a long time. You can, yeah. I can spend a long time. When my kids were little, I used to take them, and we'd spend an hour, and I'd say, that's it, we're going to the gift shop and for Coke or right. for soda right. or for an ice cream, and that was that. <laughs> right. Because you can't make it, but I can spend a long time. It is great. And part of that, Allison, is, is, again, if we go back to where we started, it's that art historical training. It's being able to look at something... And have a conversation. Have a conversation, have a dispassionate capacity to sort of place it in a time and space. One of the things that I I joke about is there's not a whole lot that I can see in a museum that is really new to me. Mm Mm-hmm. What I find is is always surprising and makes things really exciting and fresh is the sense of scale. Mm. Um, Because I've... I've been looking at at objects most of my life, and I've seen an awful lot. And I can talk about art for way longer than most people would ever want to talk about Mm -hmm, it, mm -hmm. Um, and with way more detail. I wrote my dissertation on Winslow Homer, and I mean, I could bore the just bore you out of the water. (laughs) I Um, love that about people and their passion. Just so you know, I don't bore easily. (laughs) But. It um, when you look at things in books, and it's why it's important to get to a museum or to actually see something or to pay attention at least to the caption, mm-hmm. which I don't always do because we're all lazy. Mm-hmm. When you look at something in books, you get visual inspiration, but a lot of times you don't realize what the size of it is. So there are good fabulous Vermeer paintings in the National Gallery of Art. They are so alive and so vibrant and so fresh and yet they're really, really small. They look like they're monumental because of Vermeer's talent and the way he presents things, mm-hmm. but they're, they're tiny. They're mm-hmm. 8 by 10, they're it's 12 not amazing. by yeah. Good point. 14. They're really, really little. And one of the other, uh, and, but the converse of that is I remember being again in New York at a show at the Met um, that I think it was a show about Degas, but there's a wonderful, very, to me, very famous and well-known portrait that he did of a family in a, in a casual way. I mean, portraiture has evolved in, in over the centuries from being very, very formal to the 19th century. It became quite casual and mm-hmm. that people were portrayed in sort of relaxed positions in their homes. And it, 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 in the same way you think about photographic portraiture, right, that right. how that's evolved. But this was a pretty casual portrait of a father and a mother and two children and I had seen it many, many times, particularly since my field is 19th century. But I had never seen it in person and, or in, in, in reality. And I go into the museum and this painting just knocked my socks off because it was the size of a whole wall. Right. It wasn't the size of something that somebody could have in their house right. comfortably. It was ten, I mean, gigantic. And it was one of the other things about seeing this Monet, uh, this this. Um, Impressionism a modernity show in New York. There's a Monet painting that I knew, that I do know very, very well, of people mulling around in a garden. And it's, it's huge. It's eight feet tall. I had no idea it was that big. Interesting. I love this, Rachel. You have so totally inspired to me, me. Scale is always <laughs> something that I'm, I'm... Very important not to overlook. 
that that yes, that I try to pay attention to, yes. and and also with something that catches me by surprise when I see it, um, in re- for real. Yeah, I get it. Well, I have to say, I you have left me inspired to get back into a museum. I was recently, but it's time to go again because you just re reminded <laughs> me what it feels like, and yeah. that alone is so important for people to get in our museums. You know, we forget yeah. about that as something to do in our electronic age. Well, today. Washington is so rich because there's so many choices, mm-hmm. and most of the museums are free, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, I don't see nearly nearly all of what's available but I do try to get to see things and sometimes I'll go see something two or three times that I really find um, wonderful so love that love that very much well thank you so much for coming on and talking about all these things it's really appreciated it's nice spending time talking about museums and what inspires us that way so thank you very much and I'm going to give everyone uh, the website www.polymerartarchive.com where you can read a variety of essays and pieces on tell them what's on there Rachel so that they know it's 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 trying to document polymer art before we lose it. One of the things that makes me cringe is I hear people say, oh, I just cleaned out my closet and I got rid of all this old paper. Right. Well, okay. we're, 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 if anybody has old paper they don't know what to do with, please send it to me. Okay. <laughs> um, Be careful. <laughs> there's, there's, well, yes. But there's, this is, this is the origins of polymer art history. And part of the reasons that it was important for the museum to take the collection and for there to be a study collection and for the essay that got written that I wrote that was for the Terra Nova catalog is that just like women's studies, women didn't have a history until someone started to write it down. People don't think take things seriously until you have a written history. It's a bit of a chicken and an egg because right. somebody has to start. Right. But this is the beginning of it. So the archive was was begun by Elise Winters with me kind of in the background to try and start documenting some of these moments. And it isn't in chronological order. Um, There isn't anywhere on there that I believe we will claim that anything much is the first of anything because Mm -hmm. it's really hard to know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I don't think we want to be in that position. Mm -hmm. Uh, I am writing for the archive. I'm pretty much managing it solo. Elise is retired. Um although she's in the background now and she's the she's we flipped we've role reversed and um that's I a wonderful resource for everyone then to go check out it, it's, the it's roots. yeah and i it's been it's been quite um inactive the last few months the site crashed last spring and and in april and i need to redo it it's been 7 years and the website needs to be redesigned and so things have been a little bit quiet I'm thinking about what's going to go up, but it's going to go up, and it, when it gets redesigned and it goes, it's it's still up, but when I, it gets more active. And that'll be another thing, to Make sure you save a, a picture of what the first site looked like so you can show the evolution of the site as well. I hadn't thought about that. Very important. But, um, but it will have a section on critique, and it will have a section on professional standards and guidelines and things like that. I really am a huge believer in critique. I think it's so important to an artist's development. Yes, absolutely. We'll have to do a talk on that next. I'm yeah, a big believer in that as well. Big topic. That's a big topic. That's a big that's topic. That's a big topic. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ms. Rachel Karen, thank you so much for talking to me You're here. Welcome, it's really a Alex. pleasure. It's I look been forward a to another chat. Okay, thank you. Bye bye. Thanks. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that talk I had with Ms. Rachel Karen. I learned a lot from that myself, I have to say. Plus, make sure if uh, you're the bonus material that you can only get on the Craftcast app uh, through the App Store or a link over at the Craftcast site, Rachel shares with her information on how to have your work seen by museum curators. What's up about all of that? So um, check that out. Only place you can find that information. And I thank Rachel very much for sharing that all with us. So there you go. All right. So a little ET, a little entertaining thought time of the show. Uh, Something that I was um, thinking about working on over the summer, and I know it comes up with a lot of everyone, uh, a a lot with everyone out there, especially artists, is having enough time, having enough time to do your artwork. So here's what I've discovered, and I put this out for you to think about. We all have a place where time leaks out. What do I mean by that? Where energy leaks out actually and so and we waste time 
waste is maybe too hard a word to use, but there's an energy leak, a place where things are uh, not buttoned up, you know, uh, and we tend to leak out energy and time. So what the example of that, uh, you know, you haven't seen someone for a long time and you're really guilty that you should have, you could have, you would have. Uh, so you spend a lot of time feeling guilty about something as opposed to having, you know, free headspace to, uh, design and work in your studio. You haven't, uh, errands, clean up something that still is looming in front of you. So every time you think about working in the studio, you say, oh, but I have to do this first. And then you don't want to do that first. And so you never get to the studio. Those sidetracks, those leaks out of energy and time that keeps us away from getting our work done. I'm just putting it out there today about, you know, maybe uh, discovering one of those, um, naming it, isolating it. Because if you can clear that up, Oh my gosh, it's like when you clean up your studio desk and all of a sudden you can work again because there's space. Same thing. Gives you space for time and energy. So I'm putting it out there to everyone this week. Where is it clogged? Where is it? Is there a leak? Where is that hose got a crimp in it that you can't get to doing your work? There's something big. I know it. We all have them. So discover it and see if you can clean that one up. Spend some more time in the studio. So there you go. And all of you, I love hearing from you. As always, you can uh, send me an email, allison at craftcast.com. Or you can give me a call or leave a voice message at 845-535-9143. Thanks so much, and I love hearing from all of you. And you know what I have to say. Until next time, get your butt in the chair and keep crafting. Just get yourself right into your chair. Come on, listen, you can learn. To create something new It starts inside you